Father God, we just want to come before you before we open up your scripture, as before we continue our journey in Matthew. Uh, God, we pray that uh, just like we heard your voice as we were reading uh, Romans, uh, Lord, we pray you speak to us this morning, that your spirit be here amongst us, that the words we read and the story that we hear are not just words written on a page thousands of years ago, but they're your words spoken to us because your spirit here is here among us. Uh, convict us where we need to be convicted this morning, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and ultimately have us leave changed uh, with more love for you uh, that drives us to love each other as well. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> we're a little un uh, unevenly distributed today. I feel like I got to talk three quarters of the time this way and one quarter this way, right? I don't know. That's weird how that worked out. Uh, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but it's just to notice as you stand up front. So we have been, uh, we've been working through, um, for this whole year, through, through the book of Matthew. We're in, uh, we're, we have committed to spending the entire year in the book of Matthew, uh, kind of looking at what Jesus has to say to us uh, in this particular gospel, how Matthew has put it together. Um, and we've, we've seen a lot of things already. We, a couple weeks ago, we wrapped up one of Jesus' greatest sermons. It's a, a sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount, um, in which Jesus taught us what it looks like to be part of the kingdom. He begins his preaching career with a declaration that the kingdom of heaven is all around us. Uh, and it's a key, which is a key phrase for the, pretty much the entire book of Matthew. What we see then is he says, the kingdom of heaven is, is near, it's around, and what we need to do then is turn towards it. So the phrase that he actually opens with is the phrase, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. And repentance we've mentioned each week, but it's important, so I know it's like a broken record, but sometimes that's how it gets, how it gets solidified inside of us, is the word repent has kind of been, has been really twisted in our culture, because at its base, all it means is to turn. What Jesus is declaring is that there's a best way out there. There's a way that's, that leads us into a kingdom, heavenly kind of life, and many of us are missing it. We're headed in the wrong direction. So the, so the call for repentance is an invitation, not a condemnation phrase. It's an invitation to turn from the things that aren't leading us towards the kingdom, towards something that is. So when we understand that, we realize then when he moves into the Sermon on the Mount, each and everything he's teaching us is how to do that. So he begins with this, with this idea that, that all of us have value. Love that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that all of you are called to be near God. From that place, he moves on to say, then there's a certain way that we can live that helps us experience that kingdom, and he walks us through that. When Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, like we saw last week, he then leaves the mountain, walks down the mountain, and begins to practice what he preaches. He goes out into the world to show people what it looks like to actually live out the kingdom kind of life. Now, if you remember our story from last week, um, if you, maybe you don't remember our story from last week, but I'm going to spend a little bit of extra time this morning talking about it because um, I think what Matthew's doing in this section uh, of the Bible is he's comparing and contrasting two different things. So we really need to remember what we did last week to look at what he's going to do this week. So last week, Jesus comes down off the mountain and begins to practice the kingdom kind of life. He heals people. He, he, uh, he casts out demons. He, he uh, teaches people and brings a number of them to himself and kind of culminating in this one big event. So Jesus does a whole bunch of things that are miraculous, that are amazing, and his disciples are watching this and going, God, this guy's special. Now, real, realistically speaking, most likely, up until the story we focused on last week, they were thinking that Jesus is someone like Elijah. Because everything that Jesus does pre 
calming the storm is, are the same things the prophets had done. So if you actually read through the Old, Old Testament, you'll see that many of the Old Testament prophets also did miraculous things. Uh, actually, later on, when, 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 um, later on in the book of Matthew, we'll see that people had been talking about who Jesus is, and, the, and Jesus is actually going to even ask his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And the response is, well, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're another one of the prophets. Um, and Jesus actually then asked Peter, but who do you think I am? And so we see that the common understanding of Jesus pre-calming the storm is that he was just one of the prophets. He was like everybody else in that way. Still very special compared to every, like normal people, I suppose. But there's another layer above that. So last week, what we talked about is, is, is how the, the, the calming of the storm changes the disciples' perspective. We had mentioned that in the ancient Jewish mindset, the water itself uh, was, was, no, was terrifying. Jewish people aren't seafaring folk. Uh, they don't like the water. Um, actually, in their mindset, the water is the abyss, right? So actually, it's a theme that runs very commonly throughout Scripture. You'll see over and over and over again that when they're talking about water, they're talking about it as a net water in like big bodies of water. I'm sorry, like living water that Jesus calls himself, that's different. But we're talking big bodies of water. They view that as the abyss. In, sen- in other words, they view it as like the portal to hell, right? So when the disciples are out on the boat and the storm rises up, in their minds, the abyss, hell, is actually trying to swallow them up and suck them down into it. And so they're terrified. Their terror runs so much higher than just needing to swim to shore. Because we showed a picture last week too, and I wish I had had it up here, a picture last week of the Sea of Galilee, and it's not huge. We're not talking Lake Michigan here where you can't see the other side. Most of the parts of the Sea of Galilee, you can still see the shore. But it changes things when we understand that they believe that hell was actually coming to try to swallow them up. And so at the end of the story last week, what we see is that Jesus then gets up and he actually calms the storm. So in the, the, the disciples' minds, he's just done something that's, that's even greater than Elijah. Jesus has just taken on the power of hell and won. And so we ended last week with this phrase that they spoke. They actually see Jesus do the thing he does and they go, who is this guy? We realize that for maybe the first time in the presence of this storm, when they watch Jesus calm it, they're recognizing that maybe he's greater than Elijah. Maybe this guy is something different than one of the prophets. This is somebody who's just taken on hell and won. It's the first click in their minds that he might actually be God. And they're in awe of it. So we need to remember that idea, this phrase that we ended with last week of them going, who is this person, that even the winds and the waves obey him? Because today we're going to see a similar theme and an admittedly very strange story. So every once in a while, or, or more often than that, it's, it's good to spend time with, with people who are really skeptical about faith. If you don't have, if you don't have people in your life who, who are challenging what you believe, um, it's a good thing to have because it's going to force you to think about what you actually believe and why and, and, and force you to think about how you articulate it. 
Uh, because if we, often when we're around Christians, we can spew out our, our, our safe and easy answers and we just accept that. But when we get around people who are skeptical and who are wondering, who are, are searching, what we find is that often our language is inadequate. And when, this story today is one of those stories that if you've ever sat with somebody and actually tried to explain this story to them, you'll realize that there's a lot of confusing things in it. Because today we're going to be looking at Matthew 8. We're going to start at verse 28. So if you want to follow along on the app or in the Bible, that's where we'll be. It'll also be on the screen. But the story starts like this. Matthew 8, 28 says, When he arrived on the other side of the region of the, uh, the, the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs to meet him. So it doesn't take long to realize why this might be a little strange, right? Uh, we open up with two demon-possessed people. Um, but before we continue on, we need to really ground ourselves in the context here. You remember last week we were in a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Actually, if we want to throw up this map for me, Carter. Um, we, we were in this region, and we're still there. So the Sea of Galilee is in this space. What we see around it is the Decapolis, which are ten Greek cities, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, and Jesus does a lot in this particular region right here. Um, he, <clears throat> it, says he, it says he crosses the lake and lands in a region known as the, the uh, Gadarenes, which we, we're not 100% sure where that is. Um, if you can see on the map, there's actually a little question mark there. It's probably on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, right above Hippos there. Um, maybe. That's somewhere around there. But luckily, we do know it's on the shores of Galilee, so we can infer quite a bit from that. What we do know is what I just mentioned. We're in a region known as the Decapolis. Now, maybe you've heard of that region before, um, because it does pop up often in the Bible. Um, and the Decapolis is an interesting region for a number of reasons. One, um, it's, it's a region of 10 cities. It's literally what Decapolis means. Deca is 10. Maybe you've heard that before. And polis is city, so 10 cities. But they're 10 primarily Greek cities, and the way they came up is really interesting. You see, at the end of the Old Testament, uh, if you've read the Old Testament, Israel uh, is a nation united, then they're a nation divided, and the southern kingdom eventually gets conquered by the nation of Babylon, and they're brought into exile to Babylon. When Babylon would conquer you, they wanted to indoctrinate you in their culture so they'd actually take all your prominent people from the land and bring you to Babylon itself to try to make you amazed by their culture. Well, when Babylon falls, a new kingdom comes in, the kingdom of Persia, and they had a totally different strategy on how to keep people in their kingdom. They believed that if they actually empowered you to thrive in your own space, you wouldn't rebel. And so King Cyrus uh, does that with Israel. He sends them back to their land and they begin to rebuild. We see that at the end of the Old Testament. Well, in history, quickly, Persia rules in that region until a new kingdom rises, the kingdom of Greece. Uh, maybe you've heard of them before. Uh, they were pretty prominent on the world stage. Persia reigns until a man named Alexander the Great comes and conquers much of, of that um, part of the world huge portion of the world in, for the sake of Greece. Now, Alexander was, was, was a great military leader, but he also was really good at something else. He was really good at, at embedding Greek culture into the regions where he went. It's called Hellenization. It was one of the most successful cultural, um, um, cultural movements in the history of the world. And so he does that, but he dies young. After he dies, rather than having a successor, like a son or something like that, he actually divides his kingdom up amongst his generals. And there are two generals that, 
that, that really affect how Israel goes on from there. Right? Israel is fought over by these two Greek generals and their families for a number of years. It's Potomi and, and uh, the Seleucids. They fight over Israel for, for hundreds of years, actually, until a Jewish revolt in 1960, or 19, wow, yeah, 19, it was just a couple years ago, guys. It was cool. What a, where did that come from? Every once in a while, like, things just come out of my mouth. I don't even know where they come from. That was one of them. In 167 B.C., way earlier than 1900s, right? 167 B.C., a Jewish revolt uh, happens known as the Maccabean Revolt. Maybe you've heard about that. Uh, Maybe not. It was led by a man who has one of the greatest nicknames for a revolutionary in the world. It was led by a man named Judas the Hammer Maccabee, right? Like, if you're going to read, if you're going to lead a rebellion, like, that's the nickname to have, isn't it? Apparently, the dude was huge, and so he was called the Hammer. I would love to have that nickname. I don't think I'm built for it, but it would be sweet. So, anyway, Judas the Hammer Maccabee leads a revolution, the Maccabean Revolution. Um, It's actually what Hanukkah celebrates. So if you have Jewish friends, that's what we're talking about, Hanukkah. Uh, And anyway, after the Maccabean Revolution, Israel is ruled by themselves. They're they're autonomous for about 100 years, which creates this kind of cultural war between the Greeks who still lived in the region and, and the Jewish culture. Now these tensions remain until about 63 BC when the Roman general Pompey took, uh, takes Judah for Rome. Right? That's what we see in the, in, the, in the time of Jesus. Now what, when Rome comes in, they recognize there's still a large Greek settlement in the region and so they help build the Decapolis, these ten cities for, for the, the, for the Greeks living in the region to, to live in here. So there's kind of a very quick overview of the history of the Decapolis and why these Greek cities exist in the region and the tension between these Greek and now Roman cities and the Jewish culture around them. Because the Decapolis was, the the, the people who lived in the Decapolis were very grateful for Rome for giving them that space and so they completely embraced Roman culture, customs, and all of their practices which in many ways were contrary to the Jewish belief system. Uh, and particularly around morality, right? So if you, we've, we've talked here before a number of times about how Roman culture was not compatible with Jewish morality um, in a lot of ways. And so what the Decapolis enjoyed then is Roman protection, and, they, and then in turn they provided, Roman protect, or they provided protection for Roman trade routes to the east. So as Rome is trying to trade with China, in that region over there to the east, they would come through the Decapolis. The Decapolis made sure that those trade routes saved safe, so it was a good symbiotic relationship there. Now, you might be asking, why does any of that matter for the story we're looking at today? Because what we see here is that these are fully Greek and these cities are fully Greek and Roman in their practice, and all good Jewish people would know that. And so in their minds then, the Decapolis is a place to be avoided. It's a place you don't go. It's the height of debauchery in that particular region. It's like Las Vegas on steroids, right? It's just one of those things you just, you just don't go there as a Jewish person. In the Jewish mind, they're just horrible places to stay away from. And so, yet, and so as we read through Scripture, then, it's really easy for us to miss that some of the things that Jesus did were really, really unique. Now, some of them were, complete, were the same as what all the rest of the rabbis did. It was very common for rabbis to have disciples. So Jesus has 12 disciples. That was a totally normal practice. Nobody would have thought twice about that. 
But for a rabbi to go to the Decapolis was completely out of the question. It's not what you would do. And so he does it. And he actually does it often. But I, but I tell you, though, that disciples on the way over have to be hyper-aware of where they were going and how strange it was <clears throat> that they were there at all. The disciples most likely were very young men, so probably some either late teens or early 20s. And so they knew what went on in the Decapolis, and they surely um, were, to, were warned about going there by their families, right? Just don't go there. And yet Jesus is taking them right into the heart of it. So if you're one of the disciples, you've just seen him save you from the abyss, right? He's just calmed the storm. And now you're starting, you're starting to realize that he's something extra special, something more than Elijah, maybe God himself. And then as the storm calms and he asks you to keep rowing to where you're going to go next, you realize where he's bringing you, from the abyss to the Decapolis. I've got to imagine the anticipation had to be palpable inside that boat. Right? What is he going to do here? What are we going to see here that we've never seen before? That we, what is he going to do here that can even compare to the experience we just had with the storm? And it doesn't take long for them to see something special, right? They land their boat to be greeted by two demon-possessed men, the demon-possessed welcoming committee of the Decapolis, right? Welcome to the Decapolis. Here are some demon-possessed people, right? That would be kind of freaky. I, I love how actually Wally from Walker Harbor put it. He goes, they move from a furious storm on the sea to two men with a swirling storm inside of them. The story moves from the turbulent winds and waves of the sea to the turbulent winds and waves of emotions and action that these two men are experiencing. The chaotic waters of creation to the forces of evil within the human person. And Jesus steps right into the middle of both of those situations. Now, before we move on, one of the things that we've committed to is wrestling with the hard stuff. And I got I to imagine that at this point, some of you are, have a million questions about some things, right? For instance, demons. Really? Right? Like that's a, kind of a, a, a big deal, right? So there's some of you here who see the world in a way very similar to this story. And you're like, yeah, of course, demons. That's just the way it is. And it's real and that's all there is to it. Others of you, though, probably are like, oh, I'm not so sure of that. We've got to recognize we probably have both of those in this room. So you might be thinking, we know a lot more about mental illness than we ever have before. It's clearly just a primitive superstition or misunderstanding of how people work. Now, this is one of those areas that is really tricky. Because even though we love to popularize angels and demons, the Bible doesn't give us a tongue of information on either. Now, surely they're there, clearly, but what we know about them, most of our ideas that we have in our head are built by pop culture, not by biblical sources. Most of the ways that we build angels and demons in our mind actually come from extra-biblical sources. When you actually read through Scripture and ask the questions, how do angels work exactly, or what is spiritual warfare, or, or later on in the story, what are the demons afraid of, because we'll see that in just a minute, or what does it, the appointed time mean, which we'll see later on in the story as well? The Bible says those things and then doesn't give us a lot of explanation on how that works. Those are all wonderful questions, but, and, I, and I'm not sure that I, 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 I can't answer all of them today, or maybe actually even probably to your satisfaction. I'd love to have coffee and talk about it and give you where I am with it. 
Um, but again, the Bible doesn't speak to it nearly as much as I think some of us would like. But there are a few things that we can take away, however. One of the things the Bible teaches fairly clearly is that the evil we experience in the world is bigger than the stupid, horrible things humans do to each other. Now, we're, we're incredibly capable of doing evil things, horrible things to one another. But a theme that runs throughout Scripture pretty deeply is that it's bigger and broader than that. In the Bible, there's something mysterious that is at work in and through the stupid, horrible things we do to each other and behind them, something that's transcendent and real. Evil has some reality that is personable and is at work stirring up the horrible things inside of us, whether it's deception, disorder, chaos. That's the Bible's claim. Now, understand it's hard for some of us to wrap our heads and hearts around that, which is fair, and it might take a long time. But I wonder if we all have a little bit more experience in this area than we think. See, <clears throat> evil essentially is a parasite on what's meant to be good. So we can create evil on our own. But my guess is that there's a pretty, it'd be pretty relatable for most of us to have a situation similar to this one. Have you ever been in a space where you know the things you want to say or do are wrong. You know they're not going to help the situation. You know they're going to make them worse, more chaotic, whatever it might be. And yet you do it anyway. Right? Maybe you fly off the handle. Maybe you do a thing that, that causes a lot of strife because of whatever thing that's going on inside of you. My guess is most of us have done that before. Maybe not. Maybe some of you are really good and holy and haven't. Good for you. But my guess is many of us have. And then how many of you then have 10 seconds later, maybe a day later, a week later, a month later, looked back at that situation and, and seen yourself in it and gone, who is that person? Anybody been there? Hey, we got some honest folks around the rest of you. Well, good. I'm glad you haven't had that. But if you had and just didn't want to raise your hand, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? That, that you look at it, you go, what made me do that? What compelled me to do that? Sure, it was my own desires, but then it almost feels like there's something else there. And it's a pretty shared experience amongst many of us. For most humans, there's a reality of evil greater than our, just our own impulses or stupid choices or the chemicals in our brain interacting. Something greater than just that. Now, I also want to be clear here, too, because this has been abused in the past as well. There absolutely is a reality to the chemicals in our brain needing to work a certain way. And the, fact, and the fact is that sometimes that doesn't function properly. This isn't me saying that mental illness is only a demon working in you. That's not what I want to say at all. I actually want to make sure I'm very, 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 very clear that I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying, right? Uh, our bodies get sick and don't function properly. Sometimes our minds do too. And medicine is good, right? So hear me say that, right? There's some, counseling is good. Medicine is good. Getting help is good. And yet, let's also not, let's not forget that, there, that, that, um, that it, it doesn't have to be just one or the other. It can be both and. That, there, that evil can be bigger and greater than just those things and yet have those things still be true. Now, I realize that leaves a lot unsaid, and I'm sorry about that. Um, if you're stuck, I'd be happy to have a conversation with you anytime. Let's grab coffee, or maybe we need a beer for that one. I don't know. But whatever, either way, I'm good with it. All right. We've got to move on, though, in this particular story. So we've made it through the first verse. 
We're doing good. Actually, we haven't made it through the first verse. I lied. We've only made it for the first three quarters of the first verse, uh, but we'll go faster through the rest. So Matthew 28 says, when he arrived on the other side of the region of the, of the Guardianians, <clears throat> the two demon-possessed men came out from their tombs to meet him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? <clears throat> now this verse shows an, an interesting contrast, doesn't it? In the previous story, we looked at the disciples who were just starting to realize who Jesus is. That he had been around him, they had seen him do all these amazing things, and they finally begins to click, who is this guy? He's something bigger and greater than we thought. Then we run into these two demons who demon-possessed men who have absolutely no doubt who Jesus is in this first second that they meet him. They're immediately aware that Jesus is the Son of God, which, by the way, this is the first time that Jesus is called the Son of God in the book of Matthew, and it's by a couple of demons, which I think is a really interesting uh, little bit of uh, information, isn't it? They're immediately aware uh, of who he is. The demons know who they're talking to, and actually N.T. Wright says it this way. If you want to throw it up on the screen. The demons, they regard him as one who would judge the world and put all wrongs to rights, which is why the demons suspect they're in trouble. They see Jesus and they realize that they know that, what, that they are functioning in a wrong kind of way. And so they know that, he, that Jesus has come to fix those things. It's fascinating how often we as people miss Jesus even when he's right there with us. A pair of demons in this story have a better understanding of who Jesus is than the disciples that had been walking with him for a long time. But then we have the weird part of the story, if it hasn't been weird enough already. The demons know who Jesus is. They know he's come to earth to correct what is wrong. And they're very aware of the fact that they're in the wrong. And so they get, we get the sense that they're scared. Now, that leads to a whole bunch of questions as well. What are they scared of exactly? And that's a hard question to answer. But in your Bibles, what you probably see is the word torture or torment, right? Depending on your translation. The demons are afraid of being tormented, they say. Which begs the question, is that what God does? Now, I can't pretend to be able to explain all of that this morning perfectly, but I think we can get some insight into it when we understand what the Greek word we're looking at here is. What we're looking at, the Greek word for torture in this particular space is, is basanezo, which is, uh, which is most often translated in the Bible as torture or torment, which is appropriate. But it has a wider scope of meaning than just that. At its core, what it means is to vex with pain in order to get at the root of something or someone. It's, it's, it's used to describe the process of rubbing a stone on gold or silver to test its quality. So in other words, Jesus is going to expose the root of who these demons are. And that's terrifying to them. I think, that's the, I think that helps us understand what they're afraid of. When they're exposed, they feel like there isn't much left, which would be scary. And so they beg for something different, something other, which we see at the end of the story. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went, back, went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off. They went into the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the two demon-possessed men. 
Then, in the, then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Now, honestly, I can't tell you why pigs are a better alternative than whatever would have happened, but that's what they wanted. And interestingly, Jesus agrees. He says, fine, go to the pigs. So they go, which causes the pigs to go crazy. They run off the cliff into the water, uh, and the men are made well. But what I want to focus on here is, is how the story ends. See, after seeing what happened to the we see, after seeing what happened, the pig tenders, which is the right way to say it, even though it sounded way too much like chicken tenders to me. And so I like checked it a few times, and I'm like, is this really how this is supposed to be said? Yeah, it is. So pig tenders, that's what they are. How about that, huh? Um, but they run back to the village, um, maybe to get some chicken fingers before they come back. Who knows? <laughs> I, oh, wow, terrible jokes. Eye rolls and everything. <laughs> Sorry, I lost track there. For a second, just for a second, I want you to imagine putting yourself in the, the shoes of the pig tender. Now, just imagine it's a normal Tuesday, um, which, which does have the potential always of being an interesting day, because you know Tuesdays, let's say, are, are the day you go, place, you go near the place with the pigs you go, where the two demon-possessed men are. You know you don't want to get too close, because you know that no one can pass that way. But you've got experience to say, as long as I stay far enough away, the guys won't bother me. There's some grass there. My pigs will eat it. It'll be great. So all of a sudden, uh, it, everything's, you figure it's going to be a, uh, a normal Tuesday, but when you're watching over your pigs, you see a boat land on the beach right by the, guy, the two demon-possessed men. Now, I have to imagine that they stop paying attention to the, to the pigs to watch what is happening because they, it was very clear from the story that everybody knew that these guys were here and that they were terrifying. So you've got to imagine they then turned and watched. And they see Jesus walking right up to the two men that no one else would go near. When all of a sudden he sends the demons into your pigs. And you watch all of your pigs, all of your livelihood in this case, run right into the sea. How would you be feeling? Probably not good would be my guess, right? You're Greek. Very, 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 very obviously Greek, because not only are you in the Decapolis, which are Greek cities, but you're tending what? You're tending pigs. If you were a Jewish person, you definitely wouldn't have had that. And so you'd probably be freaked out first, because that's a weird thing to see. My guess is no one here has seen that before. And you'd probably also be a little bit angry. I'm sure there's a lot of emotions swirling in you. And so you run back to the village, and you tell everyone what you saw. And what's interesting, then, is the entire village comes out to see Jesus, they see the men they had feared for so long. Remember, these are men that no one would walk by because they're afraid of them. And they see them totally healed. And what's their response? It isn't gratitude, it's fear. Because they beg Jesus to leave. Now, if we look at the story of last week and this one back to back, it's really interesting. It's clear that Matthew puts these stories by each other for a reason. We go from storms in the sky to storms in the soul. We go from being at awe at beginning to see who Jesus really is when he calms the storm on the boat to fear and anger when Jesus calms the storm of the soul. I think this story shows us something about who we are as people. How easy it is for us to misunderstand who God is and how easy it is for us to miss what God is doing in our midst. So when, I, when Jen and I were first married, we used to go to a local Easter production each year. 
And much of it was great, and I do want to give people, all of the actors credit for what they did. But one thing always was tough for me to, to kind of wrap my emotions around. Um, the person who betrayed, who betrayed, who portrayed, portrayed, portrayed uh, Jesus uh, had a particular um, speaking pattern to him, right, Jen? Yeah. Every line he delivered was really, really soft and thoughtful. Even when he was angry, Peter, I'm super angry at you right now. And you're like, come on, man, add a little bit more to it, right? But it was this idea that Jesus is mellow, that he was calm, that he, was, that, that, uh, that he never got worked up, that he only sp- spoke in this kind of soft, serious voice, that he was super safe. A very tame version of Jesus. And I think it's really easy for us to view him that way, to hold a view of Jesus that makes him really tame. We see him as a friend, a teacher, and a guide. Now, clearly, we should do that. We see him as soft and gentle and loving, and he is all of those things. But I think when we just put him into that space, we can miss something really important. If we just stay there, because it's not what we see in this story. It's not what we saw in last week's story either. I love how N.T. Wright puts it. We're double N.T. Wright this week. I thought about doing a British accent, but Jen has banned me from all accents. I know, right? Yeah, she says, she says I'm terrible at them. I actually think Em and I are equally good at them, and when we combine to just drive her nuts, it's amazing. So that's not the point of the story. All right, N.T. Wright says this way. Whenever Jesus, whatever, wherever Jesus went, people were in awe of him. There was no... There was no sense as much in the his world today that he was just one teacher among others, one religious leader to be coolly appraised. He was a force to be reckoned with. You might follow him or you might be scared stiff of him, but you couldn't ignore him. What N.T. Wright shows here is not of a tame Jesus, but of one that was a force to be reckoned with. And I actually see, we think we see it all throughout Scripture in that way. C.S. Lewis says it in the, in the line that you probably have heard before when they're talking about Aslan, who's supposed to represent God, right? They ask, is he safe? And they says, of course he's not safe, but he is good. See, it's really easy to forget what Jesus came to do, which makes it easy to forget what Jesus wants for you. He came to put right what is wrong, which, if he's tame, sounds great, Right? And yet, if we really engage with him, we quickly start to realize what that means. When we start to engage with Jesus, when we really start to follow him, we realize he means to do what he came to do. He means to set right what is wrong. And the problem is, sometimes we've been really comfortable with what is wrong. Right? The demons don't want Jesus to expose them for who they are because that would be terrifying. And I think all too often we actually take that path, don't we? That we don't actually want to interact with Jesus if he is not tame because he might expose what we actually have going on. And it's just easier and more comfortable to not deal with that. See, sometimes we like the way things are and aren't really that excited about what that change might look like. Sometimes we're a lot like the people in the, time, in the town, content to let the demons live right outside if it means we can stay comfortable.
Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, made the declaration that the kingdom of heaven is all around us, that there is a best way to live, that it can provide us with this life that's so much better and more unimaginable than we could have thought. He says the kingdom is here and you can experience it. The kingdom of heaven is near and you can experience little tastes and glimpses of eternity on a day-to-day basis. It's the opening declaration on the Sermon on the Mount. And then he actually goes and shows people what that looks like. He actually sets, he's, if you look at what Jesus does, he takes what happened in the fall, the things that happened when Adam and Eve sinned, and he starts making them right. What does he do? He corrects our relationship with God, right, which was broken in the fall. He corrects our relationship with each other by teaching us how we're supposed to care for each other. And he corrects our relationship with nature itself by healing and calming storms. He shows them, everybody, what a heavenly life looks like. He says, this is all available to all of you, and I want you to experience it. And at first, a ton of people follow him because they go, this is great. And then the deeper and deeper they get in, the more and more they realize who he is, they go, whoa, this is a lot bigger than I thought, whether in the boat with a storm, or this is a lot harder than I thought it would be, like in the story today. Because what they realize is that if Jesus is actually here to set things right, we love it when he sets things right on other people or other things. We don't love it when he then comes to set things right for us. Because the process isn't easy, it's not painless, it requires discipline and work. It requires us to interact with things that are gross and ugly and that we wanted to have stuffed down and kept outside the city for a long time. As we walk with Jesus, we recognize that there there are beautiful and wonderful things available to us, but they come by genuinely allowing him to work on our lives, even in the hard and difficult things. And that's the tension of our story this morning. That just as he was calling his disciples into this deeper relationship with him so that they can grow and experience what the kingdom looks like, he's doing the same for us. That he's calling us into a deeper relationship with him to, and asking us the question, will you actually allow me to do the, my work inside of you? And suppose, I suppose we'll just end with leaving that question for all of you. What are the areas in your life where you realize you've been content with leaving the demons uh, outside the city? Where you've loved to watch other people change but refuse to let God change you? And I would challenge you this week. It doesn't have to be, uh, uh, I understand like there's a reason that, that people are terrified because it's hard. And so maybe we don't have to start with all things at once. But is there one place, one place in this next week where you can take one step to get a little bit closer to what Jesus wants for your life just to see if the life that he's promised all of us is actually there? I'll tell you in my life many times, and I've, I've, I've given this analogy probably too much, but it is so true that often those first steps are really painful and hard, but then we realize how much better it is, and it's very similar to when we work out. If we're spiritually overweight, those first steps take, they're, they're really difficult. To walk a mile if we're really physically overweight is really, really hard. But then it gets easier, doesn't it? And we actually feel healthier and better. The same is true in our faith life. If there are areas that we have, haven't given over to God, those first steps are going to be really hard. They're going, to, they're going to hurt. They're going to be painful. We might wake up the next morning with sore faith muscles. I don't know exactly what that means, but hopefully you get the analogy. 
but do you have faith that actually, you will actually be healthier on the other side? That's the declaration of Jesus. That's the declaration from the Sermon on the Mount. That's the invitation he's given to all of you to rid ourselves from the things that are, that are, that are wrong and allow him to set them right. So if you do, you can experience a heavenly life that's better than anything you can imagine. Can you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning just realizing that we really love it when you uh, set right things that are wrong that aren't us. <laughs> we love to see you fix other things and other people and often will resist when it comes to us. God, we pray that you give us wisdom to see ourselves in the areas that aren't right, that aren't the way they should be. God, give us the courage to take a step to, try to start making those right, to allow you to make them right within us. Help us to realize who you are and be in awe of it so that we can motiv- so it motivates us to let you be who you are and set right what's wrong. God, we've, we apologize for the areas in which we haven't done that. We also want to close, God. I pray that for each of us, that you give us a vision of what the heavenly life looks like. Help us to see that doing the work of being close to you is worth it. Help us to see what a life with you looks like. Help us to experience the fullness of what that means. And help us to work together to walk towards it. Amen.